0: and welcome to the Family of Things. I'm Helen Shaw. And in this podcast series, we're exploring ideas, life and how we live it. And today, I'm joined by a man whose voice is his life. Singer and composer, Erla O'Leonard. Now, Erla, I should probably start by saying Fólcha a because Irish is very much your mother tongue. I mean, you grew up in a world of Gaelic and in a sense that's informed you.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I lived, we lived a good bit away from anybody else to start with, in a Gaeltacht, which, you know, on close examination, it wasn't a particularly strong Gaeltacht, the Gaeltacht of, of West Cork, Kule, Ballyvourney. But we lived four miles from the nearest village. There were 12 kids, one set of grandparents, a granduncle. That's 17 in the house. We were kind of like, you know, almost a little tribe.
0: Sounds like the Waltons.
1: Well, I was a huge fan of the Waltons.
0: (laughs) So was I.
1: Yeah, and I really related to it to the degree that when we were going to bed at night, I remember I used to say, Eva, Tyg, Eva, (laughs) Sean, Eva, Mom. And you could hear it going around the house. We had our own vibe because we were so far away from everybody. And so really, when I went to school, the National School in Ballyvourney, I hadn't a word of English. And all of my siblings would have been the same.
0: So that was five when you started to hear English?
1: Yes, when I started hearing people my own age and lots of people speaking English.
0: I've heard you describe it before, saying that you grew up in a hive of song. There were singers everywhere. And that song was marked in a very special way in the house you grew up in. This was a singing household.
1: Well, it was. And, and, uh, paradoxically, my father really wasn't a great singer, but he he'd had one little song. We used to laugh at him almost when he'd sing. And he it was very nice. like the, He would sing this uh, song, um, Thawne Moore, Oregon. We'd get him to do it so we could laugh at him, which is very unfair because he could definitely hold note. But my mother's side of the family were were quite good singers, you know, and she had it in the sense that if, if a family has it, her family had it. Her great aunt was the famed folk singer, Elizabeth Cronin. And her own mother, Ellie, who lived in the house with us, was a fine singer. Although, oddly, she hadn't much interest in the Irish language. She she had other attitudes about it, born out of her generation's desire probably to escape the notion of Irish being something to do with the past. Also, I think she went through the educational phase when... You were punished for speaking Irish. So, my parents were very much in favour of the language. They were kind of language activists in their own way. My grandmother, funny enough, wasn't.
0: It's interesting when you talk about Elizabeth Cronin because Alan Lomex recorded her, and, and I've heard those recordings. It's incredible. But What did you grow up with knowing and and what was it that you were hearing? Well, you know, it is tempting to
1: say that I grew up in a complete kind of anechoic Gaelic kind of sound chamber, but it isn't true and I've never wanted to volunteer that as the picture. Yes, we were listening to a lot of traditional music. My neighbours spoke Irish fluently. The language and the music were kind of knitted together The first tapes of Elizabeth Cronin that reached us were cassettes. They were bad shape. They'd been recorded by her cousins, her neighbours, and we'd be playing them. Her commercial recordings didn't really become generally available at all until very recently, so there were smatterings of this and that. And, of course, in the locality, you had quite a plethora of singers of various kinds. You know, in Ballyvourney, you had people like John Connell beautiful singer, who sang only in English, but with these traditional inflections. Then you had a lot of singers in Kool-Aid, very strong, traditional Irish singing, very beautiful and tremendous variety.
0: But I'm just curious, can you remember what was the first song you sang or when you really had that sense of your own voice as a child?
1: Well, you know, I was very keen to be singing when I was a child. I remember that. There's a couple of things that I can remember phases, if you like, alongside distinct memories. The first day I went to school, I remember Mrs. Mac, as we used to call her, Mrs. Mac Sweeney. She actually hoisted me up onto the desk and said, Con and Ron is done wrong. No, I don't remember her doing that to anybody else. So there was an expectation that I would sing. So that leads me to understand that I was singing before I went to school.
0: And you were already known for it, obviously. Kind
1: of. There was something going on. Then another phase of my life, I remember... We had a farm, and my father was a secondary school teacher, but we also had a farm, my mother's farm, a very small farm, I should add, something like 40 acres. But we had cows and the whole lot. And one of your jobs when you were about seven would be to go and bring the cows home. So that would take you, you know, an hour to find them, bring them them into the shed, and so forth. But I would be singing all the time doing that. But I don't think that's unusual. My own daughters sing all the time. I can hear them singing in their room. And I just love it. I think it's what kids do. But uh, living in the countryside, uh, running around in in that kind of freedom, I really do believe, and I don't think it's a stretch to say, it was very conducive to a sonic world, uh, a world where you were very happy with your own company.
0: I suppose, thinking then about the songs, because I know then, obviously, the church and the choir, because that comes into your story then, and... We've recordings from you and your brother from the Afron.
1: Well, I mean, the choir, I joined that when I was quite young. We all did. We, we did it in turn. There was 10 boys. You know? So it was only a, a men-only choir, which it still is today. And... Um, we joined it one after the other. We were there serially, and the whole lot of us were there. So at one point, there were seven of the oil and arms in the choir. It was quite a large proportion. It might have been 30% of the choir at one <laughs> point, you know. Take us out, and, you know, I'm sure it would be heard. But I was doing that, I suppose, from the time I was about five, maybe four. I do remember, actually, being at a choir practice when Sean O'Reilly was still alive in his house, which is, which is where they would happen. You had these rows of benches in his, his sitting room, he was in the front with this pianola piano, piano stick, modified stick. It no longer had the ap- piano apparatus that had been taken out. And to the left, then over the fire, was a beautiful pastoral painting by Walter Verling. Uh, we didn't have a painting like that at home. So here's a man with kind of a you know, cultural kind of panache, if you like. Of course he died very soon after that and Pader O'Reilly took over the choir and and I do remember one of the changes that happened it became far more child-centric. The kids were then in the front, we were in the back prior to that but he brought us to the front so we were around him like a kind of a shell and he also then started doing classes for the younger kids every Saturday and it was during that phase in my life that I started to prepare songs to engage more deeply with them to learn difficult, big songs and then to perform them publicly. So that was the beginning.
0: And the choir, very famously, was there at the funeral for O'Rea themselves. Were you there? Do you have a re- recollection oh, of that? Oh, I was there.
1: Of course I was. And I've seen footage of it. I've seen other members of my family in it. Tony McMahon was there, the great box player. For the Kool-Aid people, I've written about this myself before in, in some studies I was doing for a, for a master's degree I did. I studied the kind of phenomenon of the choir. It was a kind of a cataclysm. You see in a way what I really did I feel when he came to Coulet was he brought the people back to themselves. He showed them once again what they had. He reawakened their self-vision. This is what you are. These are the beautiful things you can do. I'm going to help you do them even more. So when he was there, it was an engine for composition, was wound up again. People were writing new songs, were investigating old collections. The choir was traveling all over the country, doing these Clash special concerts, as well then as the arrival of the Afrin. These revolutionary, impactful events in the 60s, all coming out of a tiny, tiny little place, which must have felt quite exciting for the people. And then to have it taken away so quickly arguably six or seven years after he arrived, was very difficult for them, I believe. Very difficult. I've interviewed some people for, for that study, and it, to them, it was almost like their hero was gone.
0: And when you mention that word, hero, mar the song itself, became transformed in that process, And it's a song that's associated also with you, and there's been incredible performances over the years, but it is interesting that that moment was the lamenting of a hero, of a leader, and the song becomes transformed from its traditional meaning into what it became almost goodbye to Ariada and goodbye to his gift, a lament to him.
1: It's very interesting the way that, that Gillimar was deployed by the composers, the engine, the laboratory of song creation, the was the aid Choir. They took Sean Claroch's song, they took two versions of, of a poem, Beam Shabuon and Magilmar, uh, and they, they melded them together. And uh, they turned it to their own purposes, which definitively was to say goodbye to the chieftain, to celebrate a great life, a great force. And it was a very beautiful, intimate, creative gift, if you like. And for years afterwards, we would sing this on the road. I remember we would sing it. I do think that, you know, my, my physiognomy, my, my whole vibe as a singer was shaped by the experience of singing Miguel Lamar. That last song of the evening, the back would straighten, the voice would darken, just you know, the heart would would open. <laughs>
0: It's a song originally written for Bonnie Prince Charlie, a love song. It really, in a sense, many ways can be performed as a love song, but it becomes, when performed by you and when you hear it in that post-area, the period, it's a song which becomes profoundly identified with our tradition and our loss.
1: It's almost like a kind of an anchor against change, you know. It's a song to remind us, to reawaken in us this vision Notion that Oriada definitely engaged with this idea of the fact that we were possessed of a tremendous artistic civilization at one point, that we had a lineage of, you know, learned greatness as a nation. This was a big theme in the 60s, you know, the people who started out Gaelin records and that language movement and Oriada, they kind of cemented around this idea that. There was a great vision that could be reignited. I do feel these days, perhaps fatalistically, that what we're left with is not that now, but more rather access to it. But what I don't sense is the, the belief in it. Our story is fragmented now, you know, and my own task as a musician, you know, my own, my own sort of approach, and those people that I work with most frequently, we're engaged partially anyway, in providing access to people into these visionary areas of self. It doesn't have to be Irish speaking. It is really more, what are we? Are we? And can we be? And I think, you know, in the work that I try to do in music, it's not something like, it's not a mantra I have or even a a plan, but it seems that I always end up being an access point for that. And uh, I like that, actually, because... Inside that channel, it's a very deep and beautiful place full of powerful emotions, nostalgia, of dream, of kind of visioning. People need that.
0: I'm going to come back to some of that, Erla, but I'm curious about this image of the 10 brothers, a household of 12 children. I'm curious about what it is to belong to such a large three-generational community in that household.
1: Well, I think my parents have always been kind of a great adhesive kind of influence on, on our family. We have these family gatherings, you know, when they were 40 years married, when they were 60 years married. They're still both alive and well, thank God. I'm very fond of my parents. We all are. We're lucky that we have that vibe. How old
0: are your parents now? My dad, I
1: think, is 87, and my mother is a couple of years younger than him. Still young? Still young, but they're, they're great. I bring them very often. I try and visit them as often as I can. We had a very big family. It was a huge crowd living in the house. I, mean, I remember we used to have our containers of cornflakes were like catering size. It was hilarious. I don't know how they did it. You know, they did something amazing. They did it very well and uh, it would be very difficult to follow. I came about three quarters way down. I'm, I think, number eight or nine of, of, of the 12. And I are, are you felt, all close? Yeah. Are you uh, all close now? We are close. I mean, you know, I, I'm closer to some than others, but I never feel in terms of like, say if I'm close to X, and Y. I never feel that there's any reason why I'm not close to Y. It's more, it's more time. There's so many. I ring people and we meet at family gatherings. We're close. And we're good. We're good with each other, I think.
0: And in terms of the family and your siblings, does everybody sing or were you the special, the golden child?
1: Everybody in my family sings. I'm going to lay that out straight because it's true. And they're all very good singers at that. I'm very nervous singing (laughs) anywhere near my family. When I'm on stage, I can do it somehow. I feel kind of the odd protection of the stage. The stage is a shield. But if you were to ask me to sing at a family gathering with all my family, it's very nerve-wracking for me because they're all great singers. And there is a sense, too, like maybe I've migrated from the core. Sometimes I've done this, that, and the other, and... I like to do my own things in music, not just to be wedded to a notion that's static. But they're all very musical. Um, my brother came to see me recently in, in the Netherlands. I was performing there and I was, a, I was a bit nervous, actually, in anticipation that he would be there, you know. And so this the, was the gloaming. Yes. Needlessly, perhaps, I was, I was uh, you know, he really enjoyed it, actually. You know, we're the kind of family that where if people have a view, they'll probably say it to you, but I've always had tremendous support. And, you know, to be fair, I don't really know what it's like to have the shoe on the other foot. And so I'm very grateful to them because time and events have singled me out in one area. And I've never had any issue arise out of that other than a sense of support and pride. So I'm very lucky.
0: And Erlo, obviously, as you were growing up and moving from the choir into maybe other forms of performance, when did you see music as your life, as in a sense, your your life work? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> is
1: it my life work? Is it, you know, musicians are interested in so many different things. I mean, in, in a way, you kind of end up doing it and then you get to do more and then you're doing it. But it is something I'm always thinking about. It's a devil that way, actually, because you know, you're always thinking about there's no real moment of rest. You're always thinking that record and, that group of songs, that concert, that thing you can't finish, that thing you don't know how to fix. Because I'm working on songs all the time and trying to figure out how to make records and things. So it's very captivating in the mind. It does fill the mind space.
0: But in terms of making a living from it, I've read that story about where you wrote to real world records. Yes. And actually asked them to release your music. Well, in the...
1: Where I found myself in the 80s and 90s here in Ireland as a singer was a kind of a complicated situation culturally, I think. One perhaps worthy of some examination, although not by me. shannos was sort of a subset, a silent cousin in the house. They all knew what room Mr. shannos was in, but nobody ever went in there. And people only came out of it once or twice a year for the Oireachtas and for things like that. It was like a cultural museum. Kind of, you know. And uh, also, and this is not by way of complaint, I'm merely saying that in the manipulations and experimentations that was going on with Irish music in the 80s particularly, there was really no exploration of Shandos as a source, code, as a codex, as an area of knowledge that could be used to create other forms. It was kind of shied away from.
0: As an organic form which could grow. You just didn't go near it.
1: I remember asking people, would they produce records for me? Within, and they said, we wouldn't know what to do with you. That was literally what they said. We wouldn't know what to do with you.
0: Did you feel yourself caught in a cultural museum? I did. I
1: mean, I did, you know. I was listening to all kinds of music. Like what? Well, my brothers had a lot of records, you know, and I obviously I heard planksty growing up. I heard every kind of thing, really. When I was a kid, I was into... All sorts of music. I was into the Beatles. I was into the Eagles. It's not even cool to say that. I was into Talking Heads. I was into Steely Dan. Thin Lizzy. I was into Thin Lizzy, who wasn't. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. And and then I I did hear some ambient music as well. I was well into Brian Eno's music. I remember buying LPs of his in Cork City. You'd have to hitch in. I was telling my son recently, I used to hitch in when I was his age. I wouldn't dream of letting him hitch in for the day and hitch back. Now, what's wrong with us? We've changed, but I used to do it. So by the time I think I was 18 or 17, I kind of felt, where do I go with this? What can I do with this? What can be done? And there was very few people really able to get their heads around it, is the way I would think of it now. Not a question of willingness or just couldn't get their heads around it.
0: How did you describe and how did you see Sean Loos? Well,
1: it's, it's a kind of conflictual scenario in a way, because I was born into kind of this kind of singing, you know, then there's a kind of an iconography that goes along with that. Then that's what you are, you know. You're a carrier. You're not like a singer-songwriter. You don't have that freedom of maneuver. You're a carrier of something. You're born into it.
0: It's not a choice you made. That you had some duty to further it. Yeah, and that
1: that comes with duties, then, you see. And it comes with a kind of a pathway that's preordained, of which, like, preservation is the key idea. And that pathway, that's the cultural mission that I felt was implied in that pathway as a culture-bearing kind of singer. But it's the inside of me, then, there was this tension where I kind of wanted to, to use that cultural knowledge as a creative energy to create new things, to recontextualize, to explore new ways of using the me to make new music, And so, like, I struggled to find sympathetic, empathic partners in Ireland to help me achieve that. There was a fear as well of doing anything to the Shannos. Bad enough that we have to take some slaps for doing stuff to trad, but if we do anything to the Shannos, we're done for. Like, somebody will come after us. And funny enough, you know, you'd imagine that I'd be the most fearful of all, but I have proven to myself, at least, that I'm the least fearful. I should have been so afraid of that. Because I was in it. But oddly, I've always felt bemused and immune to that fear. I'm actually more afraid of not doing something.
0: And at the point then when you say there were very few people who could envisage that or who could facilitate that, who were the ones who could? What made a difference?
1: Well, I felt that um, you needed to telescope out of Ireland, really, to see the actual shape of this cultural thing called Shannos, to see what it actually was in the context of other vocal traditions. And when you did that, you begin to see that there are Shannos all over the world. There are old ways of singing all over the world. That's what Shannos means, old way. And there were two things going on in my head that time as I kind of emerged into these thought patterns of what to do. One of them was that ambient music, it had the capacity to accept ornate styles of music as part of its matrix because of the way ambient music structure doesn't interfere that much with other forms. It's more like a kind of a a laboratory that you can seed other music into. I'd been listening to a lot of that for years and then I began to hear people like Peter Gabriel and the work he was doing in soundtracks in particular and I did have a lightbulb moment When I heard the Last Temptation soundtrack. I remember very clearly buying it on cassette and going, this is it. I said, if Nusrat Fatali Khan and these other beautiful voices can inhabit this ambient soundscape, could it be the channels can do the same? And if not, why not?
0: So in a sense, connecting with the global sound and with the global experience and other people exploring this in other cultural vocal experiences was a freedom for you?
1: Very much. I mean, what Real World had done when they started out and they pushed into their own future, what they were doing really was they were, they were employing very, very talented producers who had a sanguine, open-minded, non-referential perspective on these various vocal traditions. They either liked them or they didn't. But actually, they mostly loved them, you know. And they were able to situate them within a musical language which made sense to the world and made sense to the now. And in a sense, that that helped me to, to at least alleviate the conflict I seemed to be born with, which was, I'm carrying something really old, but I really want to do something new.
0: It allowed you to move on with both the old and embrace the new. It's an aperture, you know. It's not a magic bullet, but... Definitely helped, you know. Now, within what happens, you then, it's the Afro-Celt, I know about Crash Ensemble, but I'm also curious as to what you were writing, because you're, you're a composer, you're a writer, there's original music happening. How was that part of your story as well? And how did you find that in terms of your composition?
1: Well, I mean, when I started out making records, I had very little, really, other than my imagination. I had nothing. I had no tools, I had no machines, I had no experience. I remember when I made my first record for Real World with a great producer and composer Michael Brook. I remember I bought a digital recorder and I started recording sounds. The river and... Because I was already designing audio platforms for these songs. I wanted to make a song called Awa, for example. A beautiful meditation on the idea of a river. And it's coalescent with this idea as well of... The dream vision that poets in our tradition had. There were often in the lyrics, many, many lyrics you could read, they're always sitting by the river and something happens. Usually a female shows up. But they always happen in blinding light. So I thought I will resituate it into the dark. And I asked one of the great scribes of the Kool-Aid choir, Don Lo Lihon, the late Don Lehan, a wonderful poet, and this was my first collaboration with him, but not my last, to reimagine a song broken to line in a nighttime setting so he rewrote a a new lyric and we created michael and i created a kind of a this riverine sound field kind of song (laughs) and that was the beginning really for me because i i actually recorded i still remember I was on my knees by the river Douglash down by my home. So in a sense, I was kind of collecting myself and putting myself and my land and where I grew up into this song. That was the start, then I, then I began to think, I finished that record with Michael and I said to myself, you know, I'm going to get a studio. And I was very fortunate, my publishers, real world, they, they bankrolled that. Of course I paid them back, but as you do, but I didn't have to go to the bank. So I had a studio. And the next record, I made all of it at home, every single bit. For me, as a, a musician who doesn't read music very well and who didn't have the training of a composer, I do get a little bit unstable in myself when people refer to me as a composer, even though it's true that everybody's a composer to some extent. I'm not a composer with a capital C. I don't I don't. I don't have the paper in front of me, and it does not happen in my head. I need the tools of the studio to do it.
0: And almost coming from that... When you consider what you've done up to now, what would you feel proudest of? Where do you feel that that gift, that talent has been most realised?
1: I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult to answer that. I mean, when I, when I finished the Gloaming record, I felt quite fulfilled at the time. It was a naturalism to it that I was very proud of. Most of my own solo records, they're hard one. They take years to make. Partly because I'm doing other things and there's many distractions. And then also because I'm writing and it's painstaking. You're waiting for things to occur, actual ideas to happen. But with the gloaming, it all happened so quickly and so organically. There was a particular joy in the fact that an ensemble, a group of people would make music together. There was this togetherness in the happening of the music that I just hadn't experienced for so long. And it was very beautiful, the compositional sense. It was like very effervescent and very satisfying. But to be frank, and this is probably the sad part, the satisfaction doesn't last that long. (laughs) You then start seeing that you must do more. So there's always the next thing I get more excited about.
0: That's the creative hunger, which in many ways is probably necessary to stay alive. If you were to have that sense of satisfaction, then it would be all over. But I'm curious just to go back a step. One of the aspects about the gloaming from the audience point of view is that it feels like it should have always been. Mm-hmm. When you listen to it, there's this sense in which this group of people should have always come together and produced this music. So there's a natural flow to it. How did it happen? And what do you attribute to that idea that there's a spirit where whether it's friendship or common purpose, that it seems like you were meant to do this.
1: Well, it's nice to put it that way. People feel that. I mean, it's like a bit like when you you know you go to a movie and uh, great movies, you're never you're not supposed to know what happens next, but it always seems inevitable at the end, you know. I think it's a lot of it has to do with mindset. I think mind is soul for me, you know. Soul is mind. It's all inside in the head, really. We have very similar tendencies, you know. Martin and I grew up in a very, very similar Relationship to the tradition, Martin to Hayes. Martin Hayes, to the land, to a kind of vision of our own music. The things in it that we really like are very similar. We were very fortunate in meeting Thomas Bartlett, the piano player from New York, well, from Vermont originally. Thomas's piano playing has the capacity to bring everything together and to widen everything out at the same time. It's like a big vision and it kind of glues us all together. And Cuyveen's playing, then, is so mysterious and quite other, kind of wispy. There's that part in our tradition, too. You know, the the puka. So, I mean, I think it all just falls in together. It's total happenstance. But one thing I will say is, and the reason the record turned out as it did, like it or not, it's kind of the same phenomenon as when we we're on stage, which is we really just try and get out of the way and let the music take over. I mean, that's a kind of odd thing to say, but I said it to a friend the other night that the hardest part of being in the gloaming is that the demand for being on form, because just being able to do it is not enough. It's actually being in the right spot for it to happen, and I'm just praying for that to happen every night, and it does sometimes. <laughs>
0: There's a bit of magic to it.
1: Yes, like you can't... It's not like other things I've done where you could hammer it, you know, and you could make it happen. With the gloaming, I feel we're duty-bound to get out of the way of the music.
0: Now, you've been touring all over the place, Australia the States. You're going to be touring again. You've had some incredible events and gigs, including the first Irish presidential visit to Britain. Mm -hmm. What has been the moments from that which resonate? When you think about it, you've had this experience, which is continuing, which is global, which is international. You are, and particularly the gloaming as, as a group You are celebrities. There is a star aspect to it. You're getting a lot of attention. Is there a moment or a sense of what you pick out from it that has been an experience that resonates and stays with you? Well, I mean,
1: my first reaction to all of it was surprise, to be honest. I mean, it genuinely is. I mean, when you were making those comments, I'm sure I threw a Dougal face because like, I just don't know what's going on sometimes. You know, we, we came together to make the music. We never had a plan It's not about that. You know, we have lived in a world where it's hard to make a living in any case out of this music. It's a minority music. And so for us to find that certain apertures have opened is a major surprise.
0: The album's been on every other best album list of 2014. It's been
1: extraordinary. I mean, it's been very nice and very humbling and quite unbelievable. I don't know why, to be honest, it's... it's um, Side guest. I, I feel sometimes, apart from, if I could take the me out of it, which is hard to do, I feel that people wanted it. People needed to hear something of themselves, something they could call their own, and maybe they needed it just when we were giving it.
0: Like, say, if, when you're performing in Australia, are you getting a very diverse audience, or is it... Irish migrant audience who are seeking to reconnect with their own conversation? All of the above.
1: And I can vouch for that because I've met them all after shows. You have people from all kinds of backgrounds. You know, you have people who love Irish music who could be Japanese. You have people who can't deal with Irish music but love the gloaming. And you do have people who are living abroad and particularly people who recently had to go abroad. We've met a lot of them in Australia who are trying to build new lives, who are finding it very difficult emotionally. I have to be honest. That is what I have found. I've actually found it quite shocking because some of them wrote to me and they're finding it difficult. And and to be frank, I'm not sure if we helped them. I think we made it worse for some of them because, you know, we bring our music onto the stage and then that becomes a container for all of the things that they're feeling.
0: The longing, the loss, yes. the nostalgia, yes. the loneliness even sometimes. Massive
1: loneliness in a sense of, I've never gone through it, so I can only empathise. But there is, particularly I think in the, in the last five or six years, a huge wrenching after happening that people don't talk about it much.
0: Going back to the voice for a moment. In a sense, as you've said, that you're never really satisfied. You finish something, you're looking for the next Challenge may be the wrong word, but the next creation, the next thing for you to move into. As you're exploring that, what's in your head? What kind of vocal stories or challenges or sounds do you want to explore?
1: Well, there's a number of avenues that I'm looking at at the moment, which I find interesting that I haven't done before. I'm going more deeply into working collaboratively with composers than I did before. I've learned a few things in the last five or six years since I started working with Dhanakudeni in particular. He was my first entree into that world, that idea of being the leading edge of a composer's vision, if you like. So this was Grog's boss? Grog's boss. So, like, I come hopefully providing some sort of solution with the colour of my voice, the impact of what I'm asked to sing, and then how I deliver it. And I'm very drawn to the conversation I end up having with the composers. That creative engagement is very exciting.
0: You mentioned your wife, Emer, and obviously while you're touring, there is this, your own home and your own family now that is there. So talk to us about that because you've three children.
1: I have three children. We we lived in Dublin for a good while. Well, I lived in Dublin for about 15 years and I met Emer in Dublin. We built a house in, in rural Kilkenny, in Ensteig. We built it out of wood, which we imported from Canada. It was daft. Because it
0: doesn't rain as much. Though. No.
1: <laughs> and two Canadians came over to build it. Two men built the whole thing. I could still hear their hammers, you know. They had syncopated hammering. It was like that. You can see my hand. T thum ta-thum, And um, by the time the house was built, our first child, Liam, was, was uh, close to being a year old. And he's 14 now. And I have two daughters, Ava, who is 11, and Isolt, who is 9. So, I mean, my wife is... Um, no, nothing of these things would be possible. These conversations would be, wouldn't be happening, were it not for the fact that she can hold fort.
0: Because you have been on the road a lot, so it must be quite tough.
1: It is. It's hard on Emer, you know. And I am mindful. I try to be mindful not to be away too much to condense it you know you can do it you know you need to anyway to be sensible but because there are limits to I mean I do think as well struck me last year it was a very very busy year and coming up to Christmas I was quite fatigued particularly my voice was really tired it was just worn out and I felt arguably this is not true but if I was a fiddle player I'd probably get away with it because the fiddle's not going to get tired but the voice there's only so much it can do and I, I will never be able to do as much touring as musicians. I just won't be able to do it. It's, it's not possible. So I have to go after high value projects where I can condense them in and where they achieve what I want.
0: And what about your children? You, you were mentioning that the girls sing, you hear them singing around the house, but have they followed you in your path of music and song?
1: They're following their own path, which is exactly what I would like. They sing all kinds of songs they are very musical. I'd love them to sing more and to, to sing when they're older. Um, I've, I've told my youngest daughter numerous times that, to the best of my knowledge, she could be a very fine opera singer, even though she's only nine, because she's possessed of a beautiful tone. It's too young to say that, but I'm saying it anyway. She has this natural vibrato without trying. It's, just, it's all there, in other words. The, the apparatus, both mentally and physically, is there. But I've not try to enculturate them. They find my singing quite funny. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they just think it's very squiggly, you know, <laughs> and, and they're quite right. Because it, it is. Having said that, they've been to a few gloaming shows and they were very impressed, probably with the band. And uh, the
0: size of the audience.
1: Maybe. Uh, I, you know, for years, to be frank, I kept them away from all that. But then recently, my wife and I felt that they should go to more of these things to know what their dad is doing and and also, why
0: he's travelling.
1: Yes, so that they understand. And also so that they can see that there is an artistic life, a thing called an artistic life. Because I'm not sure that our education system gives children the confidence to think that there could be an artistic life. And I'm I'm quite sure the parents <laughs> don't feel confident giving them that vision. And I'm the same. Because I, I've said it to my son recently, I said, He's a very creative guy. I said, Sure look, do accountancy or something You'll <laughs> be you'll be grand, you know. But like I I didn't mean that he wants to do film or something like that. And he's a very creative guy and very smart. He could do many things. That's the problem. Here. But
0: it's a precarious life.
1: It is. It is. And you know what? You, you know, you've been asking me very interesting questions about how this and that happened. I was reading an interview with Julianne Moore just the other day where she said she made herself happen. Um, and I really admire her stance on that. To a degree, that is true. I've done that too. But you have to be lucky as well.
0: I was going to bring in your dogs, but it does seem like very difficult to go to them now. <laughs> my dogs.
1: Well, our, no, our new dog is the baby of the house now, and he's, he's definitely the baby. Oh, my God, my wife treats him like a child. And he, he's not house trained yet, and it's very annoying. He's lovely, though. He's very sweet. He's, there's something funny about him. Can't figure him It's great having a dog. I didn't really connect with our older dog that much, but the little fellow, I kind of seem to have connected with him. The welcome I get when I come home, well, it's unbelievable. He's pirouetting around on his hind legs. He's a chihuahua. He just won't go down on all fours at all. But they're nice to have. We have a lot of animals. We have a bird. We have a Syrian guinea pig or something. He looks like a... You know when people shoot animals and make them into a rug, but their head is still attached? (laughs) He looks like that. He's awful looking, right? He, He got into our washing machine recently, and he did about 200 euros worth of damage. Et wires and he just oh man, he'd made a nest. We couldn't find him for a few days. It was a bit of annoyance. We couldn't find him and he was under the stairs, and we found him eventually. You now there, there have been writs issued to my daughter to keep that thing closed. Now you did ask <laughs> animals.
0: Now I'm curious, just in relation to the children as well. Do you speak to them in Irish?
1: In Irish. We speak Irish and we speak English. I'd like to speak more Irish with them. They like it. They have no problem with it. They wouldn't have the same Bloss now as I would have, because of course BLOSS comes from an ecosystem. You know, there's a beautiful tape, black and white tape, of my brother Donal singing in kool in 1966, 67. And that accentation, that way of speaking and singing is now extinct. Like I know that. I've, looked into it, it's definitively silent. And that was the native sound of that region. And uh, I can't give that to my kids. We just let them become. That's the thing they have to do to become.
0: The family you grew up in, probably no more than most of us, was in the heartland of Catholic Ireland as well. And you were in the choir. You were part of Oreda's Afrin. How do you connect with that now with religion?
1: <laughs> I was a very religious child, you know, in a sense, how could I not be? I was going to church. My process as an emerging musician singer was entirely bound up with the church, very, very largely anyway. And so you had these phenomena, these deep kind of phenomena occurring in one place, the inward gaze of the spiritual kind of seeking and then the, the outward singing. I'm not that person anymore, you know. I mean, I'm not a church goer. I'm not a believer, you know. I'm very satisfied that the existence we have as it is is already wondrous enough. I find it very wondrous. And I'm very curious about many aspects of it. You know, it's sometimes it's it's very difficult to be a performing artist without engaging with spirituality because... If nothing else, the performative event seems to unlock areas in the person that the spirit resides in, or these energies are in the same place, or the same thing, or siblings, or something. In fact, if I may share one little anecdote with you about that, when I was recording my last record, Foxlight, I set about working on a song called. Lehentene Shachtene was the original name of the lyric it's a very old lyric it's you know a thousand years old and I called it Seven Sons you know Seven Days I didn't write it in kind of in a sense where I sat down and kind of thought well I'll go here and then I'll go there what I decided to do instead was that we would have the guitar player and I we would just press a trigger and we would go and we would see what would happen we would perform it in front of each other and just see what would happen we did that and during my singing of the song the various phases of the song he talks about i do this on monday and i do that on tuesday it's a meditation for each day it's very beautiful and then by the time i got to thursday i remember my voice suddenly arced up you know it went way up it just changed direction completely and some part of me had been reanimated trigger had found that container of those old beliefs and old feelings that I used to have as a child in the church. And kind of my eyes kind of felt different. And I had this kind of lightness. So is it still in me? What did that teach me? I don't know. Like Larry Cohen says that those feelings come and go. But what I found interesting about it by way of illustrating is that those experiences that I had as a child, those, those manifestations of a religious life, they're difficult to walk away from. And but they're they difficult. Formed you. They did. They probably still form part of my capacity to perform in a certain way. Because I know that people expect my voice to, to achieve certain things for them when I'm singing certain types of songs. And I've never had that clearly articulated to me. I kind of understand that relationship I have with the audience. And perhaps some of that happens because I became capable of that through the spiritual method.
0: I mean, in a sense of performance, and to reach that level, you have to transcend yourself. Well, so this it is a transcendental experience.
1: We believe, actually, my colleagues and I in the gloaming, that, and it does sound very odd to people when we say these things, so <laughs> it's going to sound even odder now. It is a trance-inducing Endeavour, the whole thing. We select our tunes on the basis that they have these ingredients. There's so many tunes you could play, but we only pick ones that have these ingredients because it's where we want to go. My own vocal work over the years, I used to never feel satisfied unless I felt that kind of thing happening. At least sort of in a moment, you'd engage with this thing called head voice, you know? It's a kind of a, kind of a golden tone And it just happens for a few seconds and, you know, it's not meant to happen too often.
0: And you can feel the audience move into that moment. I think so. In thinking about who we are and our lives... We explore what we've done and what we feel proud about. I wonder, is there a regret? Is there something that you look upon and you openly would see that as a regret or a failure?
1: Hmm. I mean, the thing you do is not the person you are. That's the first thing. I am not what I do. What I do happens in a public space. It's a kind of an artefact. It has positive effects. That's one of the things that I would say about being an artist that is valuable beyond the self. It isn't as neutral, shall we say, as other forms of art can be. Uh, Music is more deployable in people's lives, I think, in a positive way. But do I have regrets? I am sure I do. I, I mean, I am too lucky to have too many regrets, to be honest. It wouldn't be right to regret. I've been very fortunate in my my family life, my professional life. I, I suppose I w- do wish I could get more things done more quickly. <laughs> it's just things take a lot of time, and I'm not fast um, in doing some things. And because it's very hard to juggle, I do have regrets about that. I wish I was a some sort of super efficient kind of more robotic in the way that I manage things but I'm not like that and um, I guess I'm not likely to be
0: If you couldn't sing, what would it mean to you?
1: There, are t- there have been times when I've like, hurt my voice and I'd have to lay off for a month or something and it's, it's been sort of like kind of a dark shadow looming around It's been a very strange feeling Not one I welcome There are many things I'd like to do if I wasn't singing though, you know, I like writing And I would like to, at some point, teach in that arena, in the academic arena. But notwithstanding all of those other things, there is a very, very powerful attraction to the process of making music. There are many reasons why I could tell a person not to do it. You know, there there are many ways in which I could tell a child not to bother, you know, to walk away. The entrapment, the delightful gravitation towards the creativity of music is very difficult to refuse. And it would be very difficult to say goodbye to it.
0: Erlo Leonard, thank you very much for your time. May the voice remain golden. Thank you.